I am a human being and I killed human beings. Before I knew it, I'd fired four shots at the door. I kept on shouting for Reva to phone the police. Tests are underway to determine if a serial killer is on the loose in Centurion, Pretoria. The dead won't bother you. It's the living you gotta worry about. In South Africa, 57 people are murdered every single day. These are the stories of the killers and the people who hunt them. I think society deserves to be protected from me and from others like me. In August 2007, the bodies of two prostitutes are found days apart. They lay 432 meters from one another. Both victims had been working the streets of Port Elizabeth on the southern coast of South Africa when they disappeared. The first victim's throat is cut, a deep wound from ear to ear. Her body has been dumped, her head covered in a black plastic bag. The second victim too had had her throat cut. She was partially dressed. The facts soon suggest that this is the act of the same person. Has a serial killer come to the Windy City? My name is Paul Vivian Llewellyn. I am a journalist curious about Africa's killers, criminals, and the cops who catch them. Joining me to discuss the reality behind these crimes on the continent is Jared Labaskakni, the former cop and current head of LNS Threat Management, who led the investigative psychology section of the South African Police Service from 2001 until 2016. In his time there, he worked on over 300 serial murder and rape cases, and he is the profiler. Over the course of the series, we're going to engage with more and more people on the show as we dig deep into the psychology that drives people to criminal behavior. Once again, we are so lucky to have uh, one of the best minds in the world on this subject and Gerard with us as he is every week. Please visit our YouTube page and subscribe, subscribe, subscribe. For this series, we are keeping the podcast strictly audio, but in the near future, we will be filming the podcast. So make sure you know what's going down on our YouTube channel. And please get your friends to subscribe too. We're available on iTunes and you can engage with us on our social media pages. Our Twitter and Instagram handle is at Profiler Africa. And please join the group on Facebook. We are keen to hear your feedback, field your questions and listen to suggestions topics so please do get in touch remember that we will post content on our social media pages that relate to the crimes that we discuss so that you can better engage with the discussion and see just what it is that we're talking about Gerard let's set the scene what is crime like in Port Elizabeth tell us about the city of PE in the Eastern Cape yeah so it's quite a big town uh, as you said on the on a coastal town a lot of people go down to that area for uh, holidays into our uh, summertime which is December's um, but a lot of things, there's motor industries, et cetera. So it's a fairly big sized town. Um, I think its crime rate is probably lower. It still has its crime, unfortunately, mm. you know, all cities do, but probably not say people would say not to the level of say Johannesburg, who's often seen to be a, a quite a, mm. you know, quite, have quite a lot of crime. So, you know, I mean, they have had their share of serial murder cases over the years. Um, Example? Uh, um, uh, Braden Brunt uh, murdered in that area. Um, Stuart Wilkin was Booty Boer, as he was mm. also known, a murder was quite a vicious serial murderer who operated there. So, um, so yeah, so but not one that one would ex walk around thinking this is a high high murder rate type of area. Okay, so two bodies turn up. Where, when, how far apart? Yeah. So essentially, the the bodies were discovered in quite a nice affluent part of Port Elizabeth, kind of along the same little road. It's the road is called Cornusti Road, um, and as you mentioned, about four hundred and thirty-two meters from, apart from each other. But they were discovered a few days apart, 
but we were able to figure out that the, the, they'd been murdered probably about a month apart, and they were actually discovered in the reverse order. So the freshest, most recent body was discovered first, and a couple of days later, the first victim was discovered. And that's quite typical in serials. You know, you're not going to discover them automatically in the order that they were murdered, and that's often a challenge, specifically in larger series, to put them in the order that they were murdered, that we can sort of track the progression of our offender in terms of his crime scene behavior. Okay, please go and check out now, right now on our Instagram page, we posted online uh, two images. The first image is a map of Port Elizabeth, and it shows you where the, uh, where the two victims were, were last seen and where their bodies were discovered. And also there's an aerial view of the two scenes, so you can get a sense of the geography of the crime scene here. So what does geography typically tell us in a, in a series case? Yeah. You know, whether it's serial burglars to serial car thieves, anybody's repeating their crime, there often just tends to be these patterns of geography that, that come out because it's almost human nature in terms of the, the areas we feel comfortable operating in, the areas we feel comfortable that we can flee quickly enough. Um, and that kind of reflects in, your, in, your, in, the, in the crime scene locations. And it's being documented time and time again when it comes to serial murderers and serial rapists. They tend to like, specifically in South Africa, to source their victims from one area. And we see that here, Governor Becky Street in Port Elizabeth. Um, and they tend to like to take the bodies or take the live victims and murder them in another particular area. So the bodies are recovered often in a similar grouping of area. And, and that's, we've already saw that with the quarry case we discussed before. And we'll see that again in other cases that we're going to also going to discuss. How unusual is it for, some, for, for a serial killer to commit crimes, you know, really far away from, a, from an area that he's fam he or she is familiar with? Um, they would still ha have to know something about that area. So we do find some that we had, for example, the Sasselberg serial rapist who stayed quite far away, I think in Sebo King, and then traveled to Sasselberg where he'd source his victims in the, in the neighboring township and then take them into the felt. So he didn't live near there, but he was familiar with that area. So there's almost probably without doubt going to be some history that they have with that area. It might be old history. They might have lived there, worked in the past, but they know it. That's why they feel comfortable going there. Hmm. Um, might, as I said, not be a current active history with that particular area. So, so these two bodies in Port Elizabeth are discovered close together. Uh, I mean, not particularly well concealed. I mean, if you look at the scene photographs, the, the, the first lady, Leanne, who was discovered, was literally just rolled down the embankment. Anybody walking past it would see, hey, there's a body there. The other lady was a little bit more difficult in the sense of she was at the very back of a big garden and kind of amongst some bushes and brambles that would made it, that, which is why her body was perhaps discovered um, over a longer period. I mean, if the people, occupants of that house hadn't gone to the back of the house or started to smell something, it might have been even longer that it took for her to be discovered than, than the, mm. the approximate month that it was. Who actually discovered the bodies? So that was the occupants of the house. The occupants of the house, sorry. Okay, so the two bodies are found relatively close together. Um, the second victim is found first. The wound, the wound, mm. and you've shown me the image. It's a, it's a very deep laceration, literally from ear to ear. The throat is opened up. It looks to me like a, like a, a particularly aggressive, angry crime. Yeah. Um, Tell us about the use of a knife, mm. and then tell us about the act of slitting someone's throat. What are the, the what are the realities Pros of it? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Look, I think knife is probably the most common weapon, definitely in South Africa, that's used to commit okay. uh, murders and attempted murders and, and assault GBHs. Um, 
we do still have obviously a high rate of fire, rate of firearm murders, but it's the most common thing because it's in the house, it's in your pocket. People carry pocket knives. It's easily accessible. It's cheap. It's a form of self defense and other practical reasons. Yeah. Um, so, it, but it's not common actually to get people's throats cut. It's not a, that's not a f- typical way that you kill someone with a knife, despite mm. what you may think if you watch a lot of TV. You know, mm. st- most common is stab wounds, stabbing Absolutely. someone to the chest a couple yeah. times, face not even because face is not a very practical way yeah. to kill someone, um, and maybe in the back of the person's fleeing, but even maybe stabbing in the neck. Mm. But cutting someone's neck is not common. It's a lot of work for one thing. It's not quick. Um, and you know, people often think you cut it and it's blood spurting everywhere and it's over quickly. It's not, mm. it's actually quite difficult because the structures of your neck don't really allow you to get necessarily easy in a cut motion yeah. to the actual veins and arteries, which is what you would be going for. Cause that's, what's going to cause you to bleed out and die. Yeah. You know, you'd be far more successful stabbing someone in the neck and yeah. probably hitting one of those than actually cutting across the neck. So yeah. it's an effort, it's gruesome. It's a lot of work, which, you know, you can start to extrapolate what, what, what was that and why was that for that particular friend to do it in that way, instead of beating them on the head, stabbing them. Yeah. Because it, it, it feels like to, 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 to slit the throat, it feels kind of more intimate as well. Yeah. That'd be a, a, a yeah. fair word to use. Yeah. I mean, I've just had very, very few cases where the cause of death was an incised wound cutting across the throat from ear to ear, like we have in this case. Yeah. So, so, so these victims, they bled out essentially yeah. because of the, yeah. the severing of the artery. If I recall correctly, there was hardly any other wounds on these individuals, if I, if I remember correctly. It's really just that. And, and a sexual... Was there a rape? Yeah. So in these cases, definitely the, the, the lady who was decomposed, Nicola, who was found at the bottom of the garden a month later, uh, she was partially naked. She had, I think, her underwear on, her panties, but um, okay. it was pretty much disrobed. The other lady, uh, Leanne, um, she did roll down the embankment, which might you know, alter her state of dress, but it, it, her clothes were partially removed um, from her. And of course, she had the black trash bag over her head. Okay. Um, what were uh, other key pieces of evidence on the scene? So, yeah. we, so for the lady who was decomposed, not much else really. Uh, you okay. know, the, the, the very savant state of decomposition, it's pretty much August in PE, coastal town, it's warm, yeah. warmish, etc. So, you know, you had the other effects of decomposition, which obviously you don't really want to go into, and insects that invade mm. the body. How long How long did you estimate that body had been there? Uh, about a month. A month, sorry. That she okay, was last cool. seen. Okay. Then Leanne, who was a fresh body, was rolled down the embankment. I mean, there was literally discussion. I think before you could even get insects settling in, etc. So okay. very fresh to use that term. Uh, roll down, as I said, part, pants partially down, but the black bag over her head. Is there a sense once you've once you've discovered that there are two bodies relatively close together? Okay, there's a, a serial killer who is just getting to work mm. in Port Elizabeth here. A month sounds about a typical kind of cool down mm. and then build up that that need, that desire. Does it seem like a kind of a typical gap between crimes? It wouldn't surprise me. I mean, I don't know if anybody's done accurate stats on the time in between. We do often see a pickup of pace as time goes by down the series, as you get more and more victims, that they do it more frequently. Uh, A month, you know, I would say it's pretty normal. So, yeah, so the gap between the two, no particular relationship as far as, obviously afterwards we could tell there was no other relationship than a a business relationship, a client uh, sex worker relationship. Still to come, we find out how the police found their way to the door of 
of the killer, and we reveal what they found when they stepped inside that helped to solve this case before he killed again. Tell your friends to catch us on brandlive.co.za or search for Profiler Africa on YouTube and please subscribe to our page. We are also available on iTunes and you can also follow us on Instagram or Twitter. Our handle is at Profiler Africa and join our Facebook group, please. South Africa, 57 people are murdered every day. On Profiler, we bring you the stories of the criminals and the people who hunt them. I am Paul Llewellyn, a journalist curious to reveal the story behind serious crime on the continent. Joining me is Jared Lovaskakni, former head of SAP's investigative psychology section, and he is the Profiler. Just let's let's just talk about the police investigation from the time of the boy to 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 identifying a suspect. So so we found the bodies now. They're bo- they're both very close to one another are they on the, is the same piece of land no so the bodies um of it's uh, on the same property no so it's okay. down the same road 430 okay. meters apart where the body was rolled down the embankment leanne's body um that was sort of rolled the, the area from then on is like a open natural graph you know yes maybe it's a nature reserve etc but it's kind of a natural wild area yeah just rolled down the embankment then the other body which was found just on the border fence of inside border fence of the property, just further down that road, but also the next to it is then again that same nature reserve area. Okay, um, and it's it's 432 meters apart that they were discovered. And please, like I say, do go onto our social media pages, and you can see the images of the crime scene where the, like I said, where the where the where the prostitutes were picked up, where their bodies were ultimately found. And then you can see an aerial photograph that gives you a real sense of, of, of how close the two scenes were. All right, so so you found two bodies. So yeah. I, I assume that one of the immediate things to do is to to go to the neighbors. Yeah. So essentially what happened and how they got to him, which as I said, was actually quite quick, yeah. is the second body is discovered, I think, by the owners of the property, a, a couple, and they obviously are quite upset and they contact the police. Um, they give giving their cooperation as far as everybody can tell. And then the police sort of say, well, it comes up that actually they rent out the front part of their house or the front section is a little flatlet, a two-story flat that borders that same road. Um, that's how the person will get access to the flat. And the piece of, well, we'd like to speak to that person. Um, they do, they bring Rian Stander in for questioning. And it became quite quick, quite soon that this is our guy. And he actually was agreeing to do a confession. So in South African law, if you're being interviewed by or interrogated or interviewed by a policeman and he suddenly says, well, I did it. That's not good enough. That's not a confession in terms of South African law. Even if it's recorded, even if you told them other rights in the beginning, which you should before any interview with the suspect. You know, our, our confessions are very technical. It has to be then taken by either a magistrate or a different officer, meaning someone of a captain rank and above, who has no knowledge of the investigation. And again, there's about 50 different warnings. Were you threatened? Were you promised anything? Were you assaulted? Mm. Were you this? Before you even get to the point, tell me what happened. Um, so he agreed to do that and also what we call a, a pointing out. Now, that's again something that's unique to South Africa that I've noticed um, in terms of what we do and how we do it. So a pointing out is essentially where, again, if you have a suspect who says, listen, I did this, I want to cooperate, 
we often will say to them, will you do a pointing out? Now, a pointing out is essentially where that person agrees, the suspect agrees to take another officer, again, a rank of, of an officer, a captain and above, to whatever locations he wants to show that person. So you will get an officer who knows nothing about the case, because that obviously taints the information if you do, who has known nothing about the case, who's just told, I want you to come and do a pointing out with the suspect. He gets there, and again, everybody else clears the room. You can't have the police and the detective in the room. And you will, again, go through the same warnings as you would for a confession. Were you threatened? Were you promised anything? Et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And they will even ask the guy to get undressed and take photographs to make sure there's no injuries on the person. And then he said, right, I know nothing about this case. What do you want to show me? And then the, the suspect would say, right, let's get into the vehicle. Let's drive here. Let's stop here. And this is all being documented by that officer in writing and sometimes on video, but also police photographers taking photographs of everything. And very often what happens is the person will say, this is where I picked up this lady. This is where I left her body. Uh, this is what I did. This is where I threw away the knife. And you document all of those. And sometimes you actually recover evidence in that process. Okay. You know, the knife he might be pointing out. Some, we've had serial murders who've pointed out bodies we haven't discovered. So it's fantastic beyond just the words because how would we know about that body if he didn't, didn't take us to it? You know, you can always argue confession, he was threatened, he was told what to say. Those are the typical excuses. But a, a pointing out, which includes the verbal, which is the confession, is a fantastically powerful tool. So they arranged to do that. Um, now you've got to find an independent officer who is prepared to do it. And unfortunately, I think it was a Friday afternoon. I think there was rugby on and they couldn't find an officer. The great South African <laughs> dilemma. Exactly. <laughs> so they've managed to get someone who said, you know, tomorrow I'll help you do that. Now, whenever you get a suspect who wants to confess a point out, you want to do it now. Yes. Because the minute he goes back into those police cells and he mentions to his fellow criminal sitting there that this is what I'm going to do, they will stop him. They will convince him, don't do that. You're crazy. Don't. But, you know, they're, they're, the police are manipulating you. Don't do it. So that often is the case. But anyway, the next day comes and the officer is there. And as they start, his lawyer arrives and says, stop this process. So of course that throws a spanner in the works if your lawyer rocks up and, and no lawyer is going to let you do a pointing out. It's, it's almost unheard of. Mm. So he's doing obviously his job and says, no, my client won't do this. So in the meantime, of course, they're now forensically processing the, the scene further. Yes. I think then uh, Marius Hubert, who again was one of our uh, forensic experts, came out from Cape Town to assist in the in the processing of that of that crime scene and, okay. and the, the suspect's house. So they've, so they've identified Rian Stanner Mm. He's living in a cottage on this property on the farm, and there's a body at the one of the bodies is in the property at the bottom of the farm. Mm. The house is inhabited by two men. Mm -hmm. There's a body on their property. Yeah, so of course they interviewed the the the, the two men who live on the prop in the main house mm. uh, who reported it. Um, they interview them, and they kind of get the idea. Well, this is a, a, a two men living together, and this is a female sex worker. They assumed. Um, maybe not our first choice for suspects. And they then find out that Rion Stander lives on the cottage at the front of the property. All right, so then as you said, they take him in for questioning. He quickly, relatively quickly admits to it, willing to do the pointing out. Lawyers get involved. Tell us a bit about his demeanor in this period. What is he like? Very, again, laid back, calm, not looking like he's particularly worried at this at yeah. any point, actually, even during the trial. Um, okay. Again, that sort of, emotional distance, if you want to call it that, emotional coldness. Um, Let's talk about the victims, the prostitute, the poor prostitute, mm. okay? When it comes to serial murder, you don't have to have watched too many serial killer series to, to know that prostitutes are high on, the, mm. high on the list when it comes to your typical victim of serial mm. crime. Yeah, look, the, and, but that's actually sort of an American 
phenomenon. We find very rarely that we find sex workers in South Africa are becoming the victims. We've had sex worker series, don't get me wrong. But in South Africa, it is actually typically just going to be your unemployed female looking for work. Yeah. Whereas in the United States, like I said on a previous occasion, you know, if you approach a stranger offering a job in the middle of the street, they just look at you like you're insane. It's like, mm. go away, stop bothering me. In South Africa, people are so desperate for work, they will go with the stranger. So offering, who, who, how in the United States do you get someone to go with you? And all well, sex workers, that's what they do if they're mm. sort of street sex workers, they will get into your car and they will drive with you to a deserted place uh, and engage in a criminal act with you, which is what sex work currently is. Mm. So um, that's why they are targeted more frequently in the United States, because that's how you get someone into your car. Um, in South Africa, we don't have to do that because we have a high rate. However, for your white suspects to be walking around in the CBD approaching, you know, strange black woman for jobs would probably just stand out maybe. Yeah. Yeah. We know there was a white guy doing that or walking around. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. Um, whereas a white guy picking up sex workers, you know, might not even go noticed. It yeah. might not seem strange. Are there communities of prostitutes typically very tight knit? Do you get, to, is there a lot of evidence to be garnered typically from the community? I mean, both were picked up in, you know, mm. really close to one another in the yeah. same part of the CB, in the same part of the city. Um, um, you know, we do, it's, yes, they have their issues. Obviously, they're engaged in what the law says is a criminal act. There's often substances that they're involved in. A lot of them are human trafficked um, illegally in the country themselves, by, by choice illegally in the country. Um, so, yes, there's a criminal element to what they're doing, unfortunately, how they ended up in these in these occupations, which means they might be more close-lipped to, to speaking with the law enforcement. But I think, you know, we have had other sex worker series where we had good cooperation from the communities when they realize that you're there to catch the bad guy and not to put them in jail or abuse them as a law enforcement officer, which takes place, then we've had really great cooperation. Yeah. I mean, my colleague, Jan DeLunga, worked on one in the early 2000s in Pretoria, and he would just call a mass meeting and get all the sex workers in and okay. say, this is what we're dealing with. You guys have to be careful. And if you have information, please contact me and built up that trust with that group of mm. people that there was an element of cooperation. All right. So we know that from an investigation point of view, we've gotten to the point now where the pointing out is not happening. Mm. Okay. Um, the scene. Let's now talk about the scene. And again, here we're going to go to our, uh, especially on Instagram, please go to Instagram and check out our page. We're going to put up some images to kind of coincide and just, you know, help you give an idea of what we're talking about in this section of the discussion. So first of all, um, so his house, tell us what we found mm. on the property that kind of really pointed to the fact that yeah. uh, Rian was the guy. So it was a little cottage um, with a little upstairs bedroom. And then we can probably put the picture of the sketch plan of the, of the room. Yeah. But the evidence we found, and again, in any case, specifically nowadays, you know, your forensic evidence, if you're not doing forensic evidence, even if you've got a confession from the guy from day one, you're being irresponsible. Yeah. Um, so essentially, what did we find? All the blood evidence uh, that we recovered linked to Leanne, the fresh, the fresh um, body that was discovered. So where do we find her blood? We found her blood on the back of his pickup truck, his bucky. Okay, and you can see, yeah. again, on Instagram, you'll be able to see the image of the back of the bucky. We found it in the bathroom. Okay. There was blood spatter in the bathroom that had been cleaned up. But it had been cleaned. Okay. Yeah, so the police used, uh, we used Blue Star, which is, Luminol is another one that people often know, but we, I think we were using Blue Star as that spray that makes it glow luminescent in, in, in darkness. Okay. And, and, and so, I mean, he's trying to clean it. I mean, I would assume he's using, um, you know, kind of standard detergents, detergents etc. Yeah. That doesn't doesn't mask doesn't does it doesn't get rid of the blood remains entirely you you won't we might not be able to see it with a naked eye but when you use these materials it'll shine like 
daylight. If, okay. Yeah. Um, there are other things that react because it's essentially reacting to the iron in the blood. So certain paints have iron, but you can usually tell the pattern of how it's glowing, whether this is cleaned up blood versus something else, like uh, an element in the paint, etc. Okay, so we've got blood evidence in the bucky, we've got blood evidence in the bathroom. Then on the knife that was recovered, the kitchen knife that was used um, to kill at least Leanne was back in his kitchen drawer, so he was using that again. And on other smaller items that were recovered, the biological fluids dog pointed out blood. So that was pretty much the blood evidence. Um, on the scene, we have our investigators, etc. We also have uh, sniffer dogs yeah. that would work the scene. Now, this is something I just wanted to touch on because um, you were telling me something very interesting about our capability in that area. Mm -hmm. um, one of the techniques which they used, um, you know, you get police dogs that do various things, sniff out explosives, sniff out money, sniff out drugs. I think the best job is probably to be the one sniffing out drugs. Mm. Um, <laughs> but you've also in South Africa, because of our circumstances and our needs, we and I think we're the only country so far to do this, we've trained dogs that will sniff out human blood, trace, I mean, cleaned up, mm. trace, you know, elements of blood, not sort of the visible blood splashed over something, but really blood either out in, out in an open environment where it's difficult to see it even, or cleaned up blood. They will respond to only human blood, not animal blood, okay. um, and they will identify it and sit down and give some indicator. But they also have trained these dogs to sniff out human semen. So traces of it, cleaned up semen, and only human semen, no other animal semen that they will be able to identify. And that those were part of the investigative, uh, forensic investigation techniques mm. used here. You see, so I think it's interesting, again, as we go through the episodes, to point out where there are aspects of, of, of how we investigate these crimes and the capabilities we have that are really at the forefront of, of, of kind of international um, And then the dogs would be used to identify it. And then, of course, you would do further tests, biological tests for DNA, etc., to confirm what it is that they're finding. But they're, they're incredibly, incredibly accurate. And it's phenomenal to watch these, these little guys. Um, then what we had, which was quite unique, yeah. was I mentioned that Leanne had a black trash bag over yes. her head. Um, why, why do that? I think it was just practical because obviously you'd cut her throat. So even if she's dead, there will still be blood and mess. Okay. He probably pulled it over the top part of her body that when he transported her as little as blood messed out and then he just rolled it down the embankment and, and of course didn't go after the, the black bag. So, he's a, so we assume he's assaulted them in the house. He's yeah. murdered them in the bathroom. Mm covered the head so that he can remove the body from the scene, making as little mess as possible. And this is why the bags. Yeah. Okay. And, you know, as I said, all the blood was linking to Leanne. So the other lady, Nicola, we don't have any forensic evidence against her at this point or at any point. And we'll get so to that. So we're not sure where the yeah. actual yeah. murder happened. Yeah. Okay. So, but also, as I said, the trash bag. Now, and this is again good thought, good thinking by the investigator, good thinking by the crime scene people to say, what can we, what else can we do with this evidence? This is a good example of how you have to really think on your feet and yeah. and be open to considering yeah. new ways to look at evidence yeah. throughout a case. Because I mean, if you just say, oh, there probably won't be evidence on that. Well, you've killed that off as a possible yeah. evidential source. So a black bag could be evidence in terms of fingerprints of the suspect, because we can get fingerprints off of it. Yes. The suspect's own DNA from sweat or whatever, his own blood maybe, yeah. or hairs, fibers, etc. But in this case, what they did, they took that black plastic bag from the autopsy, which might've just been thrown away if you didn't have a, a, some people who were thinking a bit sharper. Mm. And they then seized the bag that was in his trash can or dustbin in the, in the bath, in the, in the house, in the kitchen. And what they actually did, because if you ever hold up a black plastic bag, it may look solid black, but you'll actually hold it up to light and you'll see that there's lines, striations mm. that go across. And that's kind of like what you get in a bullet. So okay. what they did is they actually took both bags, 
put them under a, a comparison mechanism, um, and we're able to see that, hang on, but these striations that cut the, the, the thin lines that go along the width, the stretch of the bag, are lining up. And they could actually even say, because it was a perforation bag, you know, you, you kind of pull the perforations loose and then you have the next bag that's free to use. That actually, even with the perforations, they would say, not only was this bag come from the same strip of black trash bags, it was actually the same one, the next one after the one that had been put back into his dustbin. In a, in a case where this is the first time you're using this type of evidence or mm. this type of evidence emerges, mm. is there a sense of kind of trepidation? You know, because this, there's, there's no precedent for this type of evidence. Yeah, yeah. So again, you would, yeah, you would look, you know, have people done this overseas. How do they do it? What do they have to take into account? How many points were necessary to, of similarity were, were required, etc. Yeah. Um, so again, I think what they did is argue that this is how ballistic evidence works. You're matching the, the marking on a bullet that you got from the scene versus the bullet you fired from that gun once you found the firearm yeah. and it's kind of the same arguments um, but yes you're always never sure how it's going to work and of yeah. course once it goes through in the high court and is accepted that makes it very much easier to use it again the knife there were trace remains of blood on the knife i yeah. assume so essentially what they did is they took the knife apart and found trace blood inside which they were able to dna compare to to the okay. deceased victim okay so the scene has been worked i've got some great evidence they don't have the pointing out. Where do we go to from there? So obviously now he's in custody. He didn't get bail. They then um, set a date for trial in the high court. And he's pleaded not guilty to the incidences, mm. not even the Leanne's murder. And now you have to go on trial and need all your evidence that you've got. Sure. But of course now the biggest concern is you don't have physical evidence linking him to the first person who was murdered, the very decomposed body. Yes. So in South African law for, for, and British law, you've always had similar, act, similar fact evidence. Okay. And the kind of argument of the rhyme is similar acts, similar facts, meaning what is common between these two cases that you could say is probably the work of one indiv individual. Okay, so in the third segment, we will reveal how these two cases were ultimately linked with a lack of forensic evidence when it came to the first victim. So please do join us in the final segment as we talk about what Jared will refer to as linkage analysis, and we answer some curious questions about the case of the PE prostitute murderer, Rian Stunder. Tell your friends to catch us on brandlive.co.za or search Profiler Africa on YouTube, and please subscribe to our page. We're also available on iTunes, and you can follow us on Instagram or Twitter at Provala Africa is our handle, and please do join our Facebook group. Africa, 57 people are murdered every day. On Profiler, we bring you the stories of the criminals and the people who hunt them. We have two bodies. We have a whole lot of evidence when it comes to the, the second victim. But we don't have a lot of forensic evidence when it comes to the first victim. So what do we do? Yeah. So you might get a situation where the prosecutor would say, well, we've got no prospect of conviction on this lady because we don't have any evidence that links our suspect to him. And this is a game where you have to have prosecutors who are experienced, knowledgeable, and ballsy. Mm. And they decided, no, we're gonna charge him on both of these counts. So how do you get a conviction when you have no direct evidence? Yeah. And again, it's kind of, you can say circumstantial-ish, 
Um, you know, what are the similarities that are unique between these two incidences that basically you could say with a reasonable level, well, beyond a reasonable doubt, that it was the work of the same offender. And that's when we've started to use increasingly and very successfully in South Africa, the linkage analysis evidence. Okay. So it's a case comparison between the two cases, highlighting the similarities, which I can go into in a moment, um, saying, in my opinion, whoever did this is the same person. I'm not saying Rion Standard did it. Yeah. I'm saying whoever did it, whether it's you find this guy not guilty, then whoever it is out there, whoever did it is the same offender based on these similarities, our experience with serials, our research on serials, et cetera. How is, how is linkage evidence um, viewed internationally? Um, a lot of other countries do have something similar, of a similar nature. Obviously, our system is, is based on partly the British common law system or British system. So mm -hmm. they have that in their own law. It be, has been used in some trials in Australia, a little bit in the United States, a little bit in Canada. Um, and I actually wrote an article about its, uh, a chapter in a book about its use in trials yeah. in, in a book about linkage analysis that was published um, by CRC Press. Um, so, yes, I think what the difference is, in a lot of countries where you have a jury, it's often difficult to use this kind of evidence. Um, in a lot of countries where we don't have a jury, such as South Africa, okay. it's easier to get this evidence um, submitted into a courtroom. That's very interesting. It seems logical to me that, yes, they're 400 meters apart, similar wounds, mm -hmm. uh, similar modus operandi going on here. So in a jury, in a, in a jury circumstance, what you've got is subjectivity interfering against kind of common sense, essentially. Yeah. What were the key aspects of that, that linked the two mm. cases? Then? So what I looked at in my linkage analysis, and you always present your linkage analysis at the end of a trial. So all the other evidence is already before the judge. Otherwise, you're talking about things the judge has not yet seen, yes. and certain perhaps the crime scene photos, etc. So you're always the last, last witness, and you're kind of like that web that kind of pulls everything together in terms of similarities. Yeah. So in this particular thing, I, t I focused on the tools used. It was a knife to cut their throats. So again, even the cutting of the throats is very rare compared to normal stab wounds. Sure. A knife was used to do that. Cause of death was blood loss. Um, all the victims were sex workers, and that was how he would have used the, the lure to get them into his vehicle. Yes. Um, they were both, you know, they, they weren't white. One was a colored sex worker, one was a black sex worker. Um, the geographic issues, um, the, where they were met, and of course, where the bodies were found, they were both approached in the evenings and there was a sexual element to, to both of their murder crime scenes. So those are the kind of key areas we focused on that uh, I was prepared to testify in court um, that this is the work of, of one individual. Okay. When, when Rian was identified as, as being responsible for both murders, um, how did you assess him psychologically? What's your assessment of Rian psychologically? What can, what are, what, what are, what drives him? Yeah. So I never got to see, interview him personally. Okay. Uh, so when I was called in, I was not allowed to, you know, which is very common. You know, the, his lawyer sure. won't let anybody speak to him. Okay. And that's constitutionally their right to do so. Um, even when I later was asked to do a sentencing report, they said, no, you can't speak to my client. Okay. So I think, again, we fall back on what have we seen with other serial murderers, yeah. very common, sexually motivated, specifically in South Africa. Um, and, you know, perhaps elements of power and control. Let's talk about some of the idiosyncrasies in this case. The murder weapon, the knife. Mm. Why not take a weekend to Port Alfred and jump it in the ocean? Yeah. I think it's the element of, firstly, you don't think you're going to get caught, so why bother? Yeah. Um, secondly, I do think there's, these are very personally motivated crimes. Some people want to keep reminders, souvenirs. That can even be why he committed the act in his house, that he lives with this permanent 
reminder, presence of this event, that he can relive it and masturbate about it, etc. Yeah. Keeping the knife is perhaps again part of that. That's the weapon I use. I'm still using it now to chop my vegetables, and yes. nobody knows. And I'm making dinner for people. I mean, there are various types of things that could be going through his head that person makes it personal because they want to often remember these things. Which is why we get a lot of serial murderers who revisit the crime scene even after the body has been taken away by the police because it's that reliving. And this is a, well, if you look at it in that point of view, a very good way to relive it because he has everything right there in his house still. Then the, the next obvious thing to look at is. Geography, something that we we kind of opened the discussion mm, on. Mm. Now, he's living on the property of two homosexual men who are not the typical profile in this kind of case. Don't, don't tick any typical kind of boxes necessarily mm. in this type of case. One body is on the property that he's renting a cottage on and the other one very nearby. Mm. He has his own vehicle. Mm, mm. Again, why not... Why not dump the bodies further away yeah, from where he like is? Because like I said, if you're going to drive down the road, why don't you just drive five kilometers down the road? So again, I think it's that wanting these bodies close by. Um, sometimes people say, you know, they want to be discovered. They want to be caught. Yeah, well, that's kind of maybe. Mm. I don't know how true that theory holds today, mm. but they just do take risks, perhaps as they get away with it in many instances. Mm. Although this, in this case, the first body was right on his property. The second one's a little bit further away. Um, so I just think they either just think they don't get caught or they think it's worth the risk having it close by to me. So I can drive past that scene every day on the way to work. I yeah. can remember this, you know, what I did in this bathroom every day. And I, as I say, when I chop my vegetables, uh, it's a reminder because I've got that knife in my hand. One of the arguments for this urge to be discovered, potential of an urge to be discovered, is this desire for notoriety, potentially. Mm. The fact that as soon as he's caught against the advice of his lawyer, which eventually kind of stops him from doing it, you know, the fact that he's wanting to mm. relatively quickly admit to these crimes, does that imply that that might be the case, yeah. that he's looking for for some kind of notoriety? Yeah, well, what we do know, and specifically in South Africa, is a lot of these guys do confess very quickly and do do the pointing out. Um, and again, is it the, is it how you've handled it? Because again, these guys can't sit and talk about their crimes to their buddy in a pub. Mm. You know, maybe hijackers could do that. Housebreakers chat to other housebreakers and their buddies. Yeah. And, but, you know, these guys don't. They often don't really have lots of buddies maybe. Or they, you know, most of your buddies would say, um, that's a bit crazy and I'm going to go to the cops. So maybe if you do approach them properly with someone who's been trained, like on our serial murder course, how to approach this individual with non-judgmental, getting time to know them, you're going to elicit the confession easier or the agreement yeah. to the pointing out. It's the first time they can talk to anybody about these crimes. Um, they're not career criminals who are hardened, you know, although what they do is horrible and disgusting and gruesome. They're not the typical out there robbing, stealing, cheating from, from a young age. Yeah. Um, and I think all these factors play out into what they want to do. Obviously, his lawyer stopped it. We could always say, but he could insist, I want to plead guilty at the trial. Mm. You know, um, your lawyer can't stop you from doing that. Um, but that's not what he did. Was it a case of, well, I'm caught. I may as well go have fun being in court every day. It's better than sitting in prison every day. Or maybe that's a better way to get further notoriety because, of course, the media can be in, in the courtroom reporting on, on this particular case. Because the one thing that seems to be a contradiction as well it, to, to what's typical is often serial killers will want to retain information so that they can retain some power and control mm. in the whole context of the, yeah. of the murder. Yeah, so if you think about power and control being an important element of why they commit the crime, you could, you actually have an accused person have a lot of power and control of what happens once you're arrested. Do I yes. plead guilty? Do I not? Do I, when I've called out on my day that I'm supposed to go to court, do I not come forward? 
and refuse, you know, sit in my cell as opposed to coming out when my name's called. You know, then you can delay the whole process that way. You can fire lawyers. There are yeah. so many ways that you can really manipulate the system to just cause a lot of mental anguish and frustration to the whole process. And in, in essence, it's about control. Yeah. An aspect of the case was that Rian didn't want you to testify in the mm. case. Why was yeah. that? How did that? How did that come about? So at that point, it would have been the linkage analysis evidence where I was going to step in here and say, yes. whoever did this, this is the same person. Yeah. Um, and again, and again, I'm the final witness of the state's case. I'm pulling the whole web together and I'm down there. The report's been given obviously to the defense and the, com the message comes back is we are prepared. My client is prepared to admit formally in court that he had picked up both the victims for sex and that he had intentionally and unlawfully caused their deaths. So he didn't want to plead guilty, but he essentially was prepared to make the admissions that a court would need to find him guilty. Hmm. And we thought, well, that's great. And he said, but Labuskakhni must not testify. So again, was that a power and control issue? He wants to be the one to say it, not someone else to come in there and give mm -hmm. an expert opinion. I don't know. We can, okay. can hash it out. And that's what basically happened. And I said, well, that's fine because my evidence is about getting, you know, proving that the same guy, yeah. if he's going to admit that, make those admissions, he's admitted to murdering them and picking them up for sex. And so obviously my, my evidence then becomes null and void or irrelevant. Yeah. And when the, of course the prosecutor said, absolutely. We literally went back into the courtroom. Uh, he made those admissions. The, the judge literally then said, okay, why, why not find you guilty of mm. two times murder? So then I was asked now to actually come the following day to testify as, in, as for sentencing. So obviously not the, the, the same report, which was a linkage report, but okay. now more commenting on his risk to society. Yes. What should the court take into account when they have to um, um, go ahead and sentence this individual? So I go home that night, we'll go to the hotel, draft um, and bang out a sort of a sentencing report and I'm called back the next day. I read my evidence, my report out in the courtroom and answer whatever follow-up questions the prosecutor has for me. And the defense has no questions. Now I'm sitting here saying this guy's a serial murderer, limit, the chances for rehabilitation are very limited, et cetera, mm. et cetera. And they don't even challenge a word I say. Okay. Not even the criteria for, for serial murder, not even, well, maybe, could he maybe be rehabilitated? Nothing. They don't call any witnesses for mitigation of sentence either, which is also quite interesting. And the judge literally immediately gives him two, two life sentences. Would the lawyers here, would you assume that the lawyers were just advising him to plead guilty? Or is it, do you, do you think it's Rian in this situation that say, that's saying it's him that's driving this? Yeah. He's we're acting against the advice of his legal mm -hmm. team. He's not just pleading guilty and mm -hmm. making the process easier. He's the one that wants to maintain this last bit of control that he has yeah. in the situation. Well, look, there's a few factors. The, the lawyer always has to go on his finally upon his client's instruction. Yes. Okay. So he can give his advice and say, if you do this, I think this is going to be the outcome. If you do that, I think that's going to be the outcome. And if the guy says, no, I want to go ahead and we do it this way, he is obliged to lead it in that form. He can't lie for his client. If he's asked to lie or there's a breakdown in the relationship, he can withdraw as the representative of the, of the accused person. But in the end, he has to follow what this client says. Yeah. So we can guess that Rian at least had to agree with all the way that this was dealt with. Otherwise, he, his lawyer couldn't have presented in that way. But now this was a private lawyer. So a lot of our accused people get legal aid. In other words, you know, like a public defender yeah, in the United yeah. States to represent them. Because, you know, legal criminal trials are highly expensive in yes. the high court. So this was someone he was funding out of his own pocket. And it's an advocate. In other words, the equivalent of a barrister, not just a normal attorney. Um, and quite an experienced one who'd actually represented a previous serial murderer. Um, you know, I always say that 
sometimes people spend more time in jail thanks to their lawyers than if they actually hadn't had a lawyer. A lawyer, and I'm not saying this is what happened here, but if you deal with someone's guilty plea, that's quick, done and dusted, over and done. You don't make a lot of money from that as a lawyer. Okay. You go on trial in the high court for a week or two, <laughs> well, you make a lot of money. So that's <laughs> sometimes, and I'm not saying that's what happened sure. here, is sometimes lawyers, and we saw that with the with the Mulder's Drift serial rapist, where, you know, if that guy just said to his client, plead guilty, so we don't have to hear all the evidence of these victims, et cetera, and ask for mercy from the court, and they'll take into consideration most likely the fact that you pled guilty, you can get... You know, from a life, you might get 20 years. Mm. You know, from instead of 20 years, you might get 10, 15 years. Mm. Um, so it, it, lots of factors play out in what ultimately how the, how the defense runs their legal case. We should try in future episodes to get a, to get a, a, a prosecuting and a defense attorney to join us for a conversation mm. and to talk yeah. about uh, some of these crimes and what it's like kind of approaching these cases from their perspective. Um, has Rian ever spoken about, these, uh, about the incidents, about anything about his motivation, anything about, do we understand anything about his background that might have mm. been a factor in, the, in the, his mm. psychopathy yeah, we don't really have any good answers. I mean, there wasn't much information on him that I that I recall. Okay, pretty much alone. I think he did actually have a girlfriend at the time. She didn't stay with him. Um, he had actually originally come down, I think, from Randfontein, which is sort of in in, in Gauteng, down to PE. Um, but we don't know a lot about him. We wondered if he couldn't be responsible for some murders of sex workers up up in the Randfontein area, but there was never any evidence to link him to those. Okay. Um, so yeah, kind of a, a bit of an unknown fact. And I don't know, obviously after I testify, we don't often have the opportunity to go back to them um, yeah. once they're in prison. And I often <laughs> don't know if they really want to hear from me, specifically if I've testified and helped yeah. get them put in jail for quite a long time. Um, and that's one thing that perhaps I always wondered, should we have spent more time afterwards going back to these guys and a year later, two years later, interviewing them, like I had done with my own master's research. Yeah. But it also begins, becomes a point where we've got so much other active cases we're trying to solve. Yeah. To travel the country interviewing these guys, we've done it, but not for all of them. Could we learn more? Probably. Yeah. So as we've done in, in other episodes, what sticks with you when it comes to this case? I just think how the trial went at the end and how his, um, it's just a bizarre twist. Okay, don't let Love Scotland testify, but I'll make these certain admissions. Like, well, you could have done that in the beginning. Yeah. Um, it was just like almost, again, that, that mind play maybe that stands out about this one. Um, and I think, again, some of the unique forensic work that was done, which, which stands out for me. And, and, you know, great that we caught him after two because, again, we suspected he could have continued targeting very vulnerable victims of our society, which are our sex workers. Mm. Yeah, I think we need to recognize more and more as this kind of conversation evolves that in South Africa, there's a, a lot of negativity when it comes to the police. Um, there can be a lot of cynicism and skepticism, but it is important for us to point out and identify. And it's interesting to understand these things that there are so many efficiencies and, um, you know, whether it's sniffer dogs that are so highly trained, they can they can identify only human uh, blood remains or human semen remains. Um, and what's important is that we need to be aware of them and, and defend these capabilities that we have because something that hopefully we'll get into more in the conversation is that this capability is constantly under threat mm. and um, we need to be aware of that and we need to to defend the capabilities that we've acquired so that we're able to continue to combat these kinds of crimes. Gerard, thank you very much. On the next episode, we discuss a case that all South Africans should be familiar with. 
the Hrikwestat murders. What drives someone to murder their family? We'll get some insights next week. Tell your friends to catch us on brandlive.co.za every Thursday. The show premieres at 12 p.m. on Brand Live every week, so be there for that if you want to be the first to catch the show. Please search Profiler Africa on YouTube and please subscribe to our page. We're also available on iTunes and you can also follow us on Instagram or Twitter at Profiler Africa. And join us on our Facebook group. Please, thanks for listening and pleasant dreams.